Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, and Orvis Fly Fishing. Well, it's my last interview in South Carolina for a while, and I'm really glad I got a chance to connect with today's guest, Jeremy Clark. Jeremy's an incredible photographer, father, and fisherman who began his pursuit of tailing redfish by wading out in a pair of old Chuck Taylors off the side of the road. And although Jeremy did run into a fish that day, he has come a long way and has an incredible knack for capturing those special moments in the marsh. In this episode, Jeremy and I discuss how to tackle difficult learning curves, the importance of appreciating the seemingly mundane, and the upside of abject failure, and also how an earthquake changed the trajectory of his life. I really appreciate Jeremy's thoughtfulness with these questions and walked away with a lot to think about. I hope that you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. Beep, 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 beep. No one else knew anything anyway, and you just might definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's an old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? Out? So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Hey, Jeremy, thanks for hanging out with us on the podcast, man. I, I followed your work for a long time here and the photography that you've done. And I love the video that you did with Fly Lords. I thought that was such a, a powerful story and really moving. And I'm excited to talk about your career and your family and fishing with you. But before we get into all that, do you mind just giving us uh, the background of how you first fell in love with the outdoors? Hey, Hunter. Yeah. Um, First, thanks for having me. It's uh, excited to be on your podcast here. Um, yeah, uh, so, I mean, I grew up in, in Virginia, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, little tiny town, and um, really just that's where we played, you know. We played in the outdoors, did a, a bunch of fishing and hunting growing up, um, all pretty low-key stuff, you know, farm ponds for bass and catfishing in the lake and things like that. I never really fly-fished until quite a bit later on. Um, but yeah, uh, so I, I mean, I grew up with, with all that around me. We lived on five acres and it was, um, surrounded by woods. You know, our closest neighbor was about a quarter mile away. So, you know, we spent quite a bit of time outside my, my brother and I, and then I had a sister that was quite a bit younger than, than myself and, um, sort of put that on hold a little bit. Um, when I, I joined the Marine Corps right out of high school and, um, I mean, of course, we were still outdoors then, but just in a, a bit of a different capacity. So, yeah, I mean, it kind of got instilled very young. Um, my, my family hunted quite a bit. Um, they fished some, but but mostly it was hunting uh, that they did. 
Yeah, and and in the Marine Corps, did you move around quite a bit during that season, or what did that season of life look like? Yeah, so um, I had two main duty stations that I was at, um, but one of which I spent quite a bit of time deployed overseas, and so that was just a little challenging. And then it was just really there was no excuse not to be continuing to do the outdoor things that I loved, except for, you know, I was a young, dumb Marine and we just hung out and partied all the time. That was the, (laughs) that was the MO for that little period of my life. And so what did it look like transitioning from your time in the service, just back into, for lack of a better phrase, civilian life and kind of reconnecting with the outdoors? What did that season look like? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You know, we, my wife and I were both Marines. Um, we didn't get married to right after we got out, but I did um, almost 10 years in and decided to get out. And that was kind of a big decision. You know, a lot of people told me you're crazy. You're, you're halfway to retirement. And, you know, I, 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 I like to put it like this. I, I had my fun with the Marine Corps. They certainly had their fun with me and we, we parted on good terms. So it was just my time to go. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, when I, when I got out and, you know, took a job, it was, it was scary of, at first, of course, you know, just a kind of a big change and sort of an unknown. And, uh, but once we did that, I found out, you know, I've got all this free time and really started to reconnect, um, with some new stuff. You know, I I grew up in, in freshwater, like I said, in farm ponds in kind of the middle of Virginia and the, the saltwater scene was completely and utterly new to me. And, uh, I was fascinated with speckled trout more than anything at the time and, uh, and, and redfish of course as well. Um, so, uh, it was easier to get back into fishing at that time, um, because there was so much public water access and not quite as much public land access that I was familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. so, so I gravitated towards that more than getting back into hunting right off. And that sort of took on and into its own thing. And, you know, I didn't start I didn't start fly, you know, I fly fish a a lot now, almost that's about all I do anymore. And that didn't start until I got to Charleston. Hmm. I, I picked up a fly rod after the very first time, uh, I I talked to a shop around here and kind of heard about this tailing redfish thing and, you know, said, man, that looks like fun. Let me try that. And, um, I I felt like I got led astray right at first with some info because I I think I got directions wrong and ended up, you know, over hip deep in some pluff mud water with, you know, grass growing up head high and just didn't know what I was doing and kind of reset and went back again the next day and stumbled out into the marsh and had no idea what I was doing and thought, this is ridiculous. And right then, uh, a redfish tailed, 25 feet from me and I just froze and he, he, I didn't know what to do. I had a spinning rod and a Johnson's gold spoon on and he swam around behind me just a couple of minutes or a couple of feet behind me. And when he, once he passed me, I flipped him that spoon and he ate it and took off and came unbuttoned. I didn't catch that fish and I I don't know what it was, but for some reason I thought I want to do this with a fly rod, having (laughs) zero experience with a fly rod ever in my life. And that's when I picked it up. Yeah, I joke with people often that, you know, you think about that story and you think, how can I make this situation harder? <laughs> yeah. What can I <laughs> do know? to make this way more difficult? <laughs> were, were you wade fishing? I mean, was it just 
here's a kid that grew up in Virginia, went off in, in the Marines, and now you find yourself in Charleston, South Carolina. Did you just wait out there with a spinning rod, or, or how did that look? That's it. I pulled off on the side of the road where someone kind of said, you know, you, you might be able to access right here. I, so I pulled off on the side of the road with a pair of sneakers and a spinning rod at hand. And, you know, I didn't make it 50 feet from the bank before I saw this fish. So it was pretty fortunate. I mean, I could have been wandering around forever and not knowing what in the world I was doing. Um, so yeah, it, it's, and, and part of the, what I love about it is, you know, you can get as fancy as you want to with these fish, or you can have an old pair of Chuck Taylors, uh, you know, an extra fly in your pocket and just park on the side of the road and, and walk out and find these things. It's, you know, wow. it can, it can, you can, you can overcomplicate it as much as you want, but it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty special that way. Yeah. And I'm excited to talk more just about kind of how fishing has become a, a big part of your life, but wh where did the photography piece come in? Because I first found out about you, somebody had brought some photos to my attention and said, man, you need to, you need to check these out. I think you're really going to like these. And, um, man, I fell in love with your photography. I thought it was just capturing these moments so well. Where did the photo piece come in for you? Thanks, man. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think I've always enjoyed sharing. Like, I'm a storyteller. You know, all, all my friends, they, they've they got this thing. They think they're hilarious because I, I'll tell a story, and if I if I tell it more than once, they hold up fingers for how many times they've told, uh, they've heard it. You know, and... and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so I've always, I've always loved storytelling. And I think it's sort of evolved into, you know, I'm trying to do this sort of long distance with people back home with things I'm seeing, you know, in the Marine Corps and things that I'm seeing, you know, having sort of gotten out of my small town in Virginia and sharing it with family and friends back home. And, and, uh, it was just a really convenient way to be able to sort of back up the stories I'm telling, not as far as, you know, verifying the information, but more of, it's just much more descriptive. You know, I could tell, I could tell a story about how I did, you know, just what I, I told you about the first redfish there. And, but if I, if I don't accompany that with, you know, photos of the marsh and what that was like, mm -hmm. and sort of, I feel like it rounds out the, you know, the experience. So it kind of just, it took hold in, in, in that way. And, and was just a very serious hobby for a long time, um, with a point and shoot camera for a very, very long time. And sort of just took off from there. It, and it's, it's always, to me, it's always just been about sharing a moment, you know, um, just wanting to, wanting to capture that and, and, you know, be able to put it out there to people that have similar interests. Yeah. What was harder for you beginning? Like, was it getting into fly fishing or was it getting into photography? Because those are two kind of challenging learning curves there. Yeah, I, they're they're probably neck and neck to be honest. You know, I, I, when I got when I got my first fly rod, it's like a Cabela's rod or something. I don't even remember. And I I got a kayak and I would kayak to flats and get out and walk. And I had no I had no idea what I was doing. I I didn't take casting lessons. I didn't do anything. The only time I would really cast is when I saw a redfish, which was very infrequently. So, you know, practice was very few and far between. And I even, I, I, I broke off about 18 inches at the tip of that rod and never did anything about it. So I fished with a, 
you know, an, an eight weight that was only supposed to be nine feet long, but it was only seven <laughs> feet and a couple inches or something for, you know, two years, just figuring it out. And, it, you know, it wasn't very far off with, the, with the photography either. You know, I had a lot of bad habits that I, I, I know now, but I, I didn't know then. And it's just, you know, after just sort of having both of those things in your hands for long enough and sort of having them everywhere with you, and you kind of figure those out. And I had a lot of help along the way, people that kind of would give tips and things, but it, both were pretty painful journeys kind of <laughs> from the get-go. Yeah, I, um, I I definitely see there being a correlation between the two. Have you always just enjoyed the the challenge or the journey of learning something new? Yeah, I I, I do. And, you know, I never really did much further education, um, like uh, – organized education after high school, but I, but I, I, I do love learning new things. I, I've, I've always got my plate full with something else I want to do I, with way too many things, but, but certainly, you know, challenging myself with something new and, uh, and, and rounding it out, uh, fleshing that out, I guess, you know, certainly, certainly feels good. It, I, I don't want to do things that I'm not good at. And so, the things I choose to do, I, I, I try to do those very well. What, what tips, what tips could you give to somebody who's maybe at the very beginning of photography or fly fishing or just any type of thing that they want to be good at, but there's a, a big learning curve? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think the, the best way to get over a big learning curve is to overwhelm it with, with your attention. So, you know, if, if you're, if you're into photography and I get quite a few, you know, questions, you know, what camera should I get and, and what, what this and what that, and, you know, it's, it's really about, I, I think it's really about developing your own voice, um, and making sure that you're passionate about what you're doing. So, if, you know, for instance, I get a lot of, a lot of questions about photography and, um, my response is almost always, you know, you, you want to have equipment that you can manipulate yourself. So you want something with manual controls um, so that the camera isn't forcing your creativity one way or another. And, and you also want to put that thing in your hands and carry it everywhere with you. Take, you know, take photos of everything that you're passionate about. Take, just use it all the time until it, you know, becomes an extension of your arm and, and at that point, you'll, you know, you, you'll develop your own voice. Um, mm. And, and I think, you know, if you're, if you're passionate about something, it resonates with other people um, because they, they can, they can really sort of glean that off of whatever you're producing. You know, if, if you're, pa- and that goes with anything, not just photography. I think, you know, if you're passionate about cooking, it shows, you know, and, and so, and I think that's the biggest thing is to overwhelm the subject at hand with your presence. So just be there all the time. When you look back at your life, what do you feel like were the most influential things in your voice and shaping your voice? Huh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I so I grew up, you know, pretty far out in the middle of nowhere. Um we didn't have much. We grew up pretty poor. And so, you know, moving, 
moving away from that, I feel, I feel like I uh, maybe appreciate the mundane. I don't know if that mm-hmm. even really makes sense, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I'd like to think that I, I appreciate the authenticity of the moment. And so what's happening right now is very, very important because it's, it, you know, you can't relive that. And so I, I try to make the best of that right now. And, you know, I did have some events in my life that, you know, made a significant impact. And probably two of the most things is um, I was in a pretty serious earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2011. And, you know, probably shouldn't have made it out of that. We were trapped in a high-res building that was collapsing for quite a few hours and some various things. And um, that was a pretty significant life-changing moment. Um, Just really solidified you know, the fact that time is fleeting and, mm. you know, if you, if you don't move on the things that you want to, you know, there, tomorrow is not assured. And that sounds really cliche, but it's, you know, when you're really faced with something like that and there's everybody, you know, lots of people have tons of experiences like that, but, um, it, it really kind of puts things into perspective. And the, the second thing I, th- I think, and they're kind of tied together is, you know, my wife and I were not able to have our own kids and something we really wanted was to start our family. And, you know, the, the earthquake experience really kind of woke us up and said, all right, we're, you know, we've been doing this on our own for long enough. It's, you know, it's, it's time to, you know, bring in some help, whatever that is. So, you know, let's go, let, let's go to the to the clinic and see what's going on and see what we can do and see what the doctors say and you know it ended up with adoption and it's you know it's awesome you know my kids my two kids are both adopted and they're a tremendous part of my life and and I think those things sort of both of those events sort of drive home to me that you know you've got to make the most of the time that you have when you're 25 stories up and you're caught in an earthquake and you're thinking <laughs> that you're never going to get out again, what, what are the thoughts racing through your mind in that moment? Yeah, it's funny. You don't think about anything that you think is important today. You, I think it really, it really sort of trims the fat, so to speak. And so when I, when I was up there and we were, Pretty much everybody that was trapped in there with me, we, we, we were reserved to the fact that we only had a few moments or you know, hours left on the earth. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to speak to my wife to tell her I loved her and I wanted to start a family. Hmm. That was it. Now, you know, you, you don't think about, gosh, the, I got to get the oil changed on the truck you know, I'm running behind on that, or I got to do this, you know, none of that stuff matters. And, and it, you know, it, it certainly was a wake up call. It absolutely, you know, was a wake up call. If you, if that hadn't have happened, where do you think you would be? Like what, what was the trajectory, I guess, if that had never come into play? You know, I, I almost, I hate to, say this, I don't think I've ever really thought about that before, but you know, if, if the trajectory would have remained the same, I wonder if we would have adopted 
at least on the same course that we did. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we always imagined that we would adopt children. Um, you know, we just never envisioned it would be our first. So possibly the, possibly I would have ended up in a similar situation, um, just delayed a bit, you know, that, mm-hmm. that really kind of got us moving, um, to, um, towards adoption or towards figuring what, figuring out what we needed to do. And, and I love the way that you put it, you know, to trim the the fat. Like when you think about life, what was some of the fat that got trimmed away from, from that moment? Virtually everything. And, you know, that not once did I think I, you know, I'm not going to, be able to watch Netflix again. You know, I'm, I'm not going to, I never once thought I'm never going to be able to fly fish again. You know, none of that stuff mattered. The things that even things that I'm, you know, I'm very passionate about. Um, you know, it was, it, it really all came down to family just mm-hmm. period. You know, I, I wanted to, to be around, to be around with my family and to see my family grow and, you know, to be with loved ones. And, you know, that's, you know, when it comes down to, you know, people matter, you know, if, if you don't, you know, and if you, if you can't sort of recognize that, you know, I, f- I feel like, you know, you have a real obstacle to, to maybe growing in your own life. Hmm. So you had mentioned that your upbringing in Virginia and just kind of being in a more rural environment helped you to appreciate the mundane and that's something that I've noticed and kind of really appreciated about some of the things that you share and try to put out there is just these, I guess you could sometimes call them the in-between moments, you know, of, I think a lot of times in the outdoor industry, there can be a, a temptation, just it's all grip and grins. It's all high action, you know, and I've noticed that you you really have made a priority to try to kind of slow things down and appreciate these little moments. And I would imagine that even though, you know, a lot of things start to fall into a different priority slot in your life, that when you come back from an experience like that and you start a family and then you, you engage in going out on the water or going out to a place in the outdoors that you love, that it, that it changes the way you see it. In what ways did that life-altering experience change the way that you engaged with the outdoors? You know, probably the same way it did with everything is just it 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 drives an appreciation, you know, for and maybe mundane. The way I said it earlier is 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 not the right word. Maybe more appropriately, it's the seemingly mundane. Mm. You know, because you can you can gloss over the little things. You know, some of my favorite times that I've had since. And I I don't know that I would have, you know, been able to slow down and and recognize these sort of things without something like what I went through happening to me. You know, for instance, you pull up in the marsh and the tide's done and you're, it's dropping out and you're just kind of sitting back with whoever you're on the skiff with and, you know, rehashing some memories of what happened that time or just, just hanging out, being quiet. And, and when you do, you, you know, you look around you and you get to see that you know, the marsh is just alive, like all, all the way down to the teeny tiny little pinpoint sized spiders that crawl around this Spartina. 
you know, in the periwinkle snails and, um, something I, one of my favorite things to do is to, to break out a macro lens and we're sitting still and the tide's dropping and the you know, grass is getting taller beside the boat and there's just critters all around and sort of really taking a close look at those things. And, um, you know, when I do, I, I find myself going home and researching the things that I've taken photos of because I realize I don't know much about these things at all. And I've learned quite a bit about the marsh just by doing that. And I think it's those quiet moments that are easily overshadowed by, like you said, a, a grip and grin. You know, that's not my favorite part of the day. But one of my favorite things to to shoot, you know, is abject failure. Abject, mm-hmm. abject failure just speaks volumes above you know, being in the winter circle and it's, you know, it's a, it's a whole different type of emotion, you know, and, and, and maybe a little more visceral. So yeah, I I really enjoy that. Yeah. Explain to me abject failure. What's the case for appreciating abject failure? So, um, uh, so a trip that you've put tons of time, maybe a lot of your finances into and all these things. And it culminates in, in, in this tremendous moment where, you know, the, the scales tip can tip one way or another, and you've got the fish of a lifetime on and a gear failure or just anything happens. And, and in the blink of an eye, it's over. Hmm. And the, the instant, that that happens there's there's something in the people that are experiencing that that you know the the way they react to that it's it's just visceral and it's it's great to see i mean you hate to see people essentially fail but it's a it's a fantastic thing to catch you know mm. as far as photography yeah especially when you're behind the camera <laughs> right right when you're not <laughs> yeah, the one yeah. yeah yeah when you're the one that loses the fish of a lifetime or something of course that that's not very fun and it's probably not fun having a camera in your face when that's happening to you but <laughs> you, you know um i i have a friend who uh marty over at bad fish they they filmed the video series and they had a lot of abject failure in that he wouldn't mind me saying that and um i appreciated it as somebody watching it because i feel like it's so easy to edit out for lack of better phrase, all the, the mess ups, the, the bad casts, the blown shots, the just times where the fish and you edit all that out in this kind of maybe in some ways overproduced world we live in. And it can sometimes I think impact other people's experience because when they put on their sneakers for the first time and they wait out there and they blow a shot or comes unbuttoned or whatever. And they're thinking, well, I've never, it doesn't seem like anybody else that comes unbuttoned. Well, it does all the time, but they've edited it out. It kind of leads me to a question I had, which is as somebody who's in the media side of things and photography, what responsibility do you feel like people in the media side of, of the industry have in trying to help, um, be authentic. And for those who are new or struggling, see a more holistic picture of, of the outdoor experience. Yeah. That, that's a really good point. You know, I think it's all a highlight reel. Anything you're seeing is just a highlight reel. No matter what your method of consumption is, 
you know, for the most part, you're seeing someone's highlight reel and, and comparison is, you know, one of the thieves of joy and it, it, everybody's vulnerable to that. You know, I, I certainly am. And it's, I think there is an inherent duty for people to be authentic in that realm. Um, you know, I, I get a lot of questions all the time. You know, I, I wish I could fish every day like you do and, and things like that. And I, I, I try to be very real with people and say, that's, that's, that's not reality. You know, I'm sharing moments that I enjoy, but, you know, I, I, I work at a desk and, you know, I answer emails all day long kind of thing. I, I do a quite a bit, quite a bit of that as well. Um, you know, and that's, I think that's across the board. That's not just in, you know, photography or fly fishing. There's, there's certainly a, an inherently bad thing with um, misrepresenting your life or, and it's, and I think it comes honestly as, you know, you just, you just want to share things that you're excited about and share things that are good that are happening. And, Mm -hmm. but uh, the thing that we don't see is that could, you know, negatively affect someone else's opinion of, of themselves or their experience. And so, you know, I don't think about it very often, but, you know, maybe showing the seemingly mundane is, is a great way to, sort of combat that. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's I think that's good. Something that you and I have in common is we're both Christians and we're both people of faith. And with this podcast, I try to to interview people and in my terms, get out of the way. I, I, I want to interview somebody and it actually be about the person I'm interviewing and what they think and how they communicate. And it and I can tell that to you, faith is an important part of your life and in what way has faith shaped your, your family, your, your life and the way that you engage in fishing? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, well, I, I certainly believe that, you know, specifically in, in, you know, going back to the earthquake, there's, there's something that, that I, I'm meant to accomplish here in this world. And that's one of the reasons that I was spared not so sure that I know what that is. Maybe it's to, you know, be a dad to these two little kids. Maybe that's something different. I, I'm, I'm not really sure, but I, I wholeheartedly believe in that. And, you know, the, the story of, of the earthquake gets, gets pretty long. I, I won't get into that, but there was a, you know, there was a, a, a moment there where certainly there was a, a supernatural intervention that, that, that kept me here. And, mm. Um, so that's maybe the most obvious or, or poignant, you know, one, but, you know, just the, the everyday things, you know, learning to, you know, to love people the way that you're supposed to, and, um, to instill that into your kids and, um, you know, to just to, to, to bring them up in the way that they're going to, you know, be constructive and they're going to be you know, caring people and that they're going to, you know, have an impact, uh, you know, all of their own. It's hard to raise little kids. And I know there's a ton of people out there have kids and and you do as well that understand this, you know, your job is to raise them to become independent. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard to do because you don't want them to be independent. You want them to kind of, you know, come running to, to Papa for things all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's really, you know, it's really driven that it's, you know, it's been a, a, a bulkhead of, you know, of our marriage, you know, me and my wife's marriage, 
And hmm. so, yeah, it's, um, it, I, I guess it's always lingering there, you know, and I certainly struggle with that sometimes. Um, and, and a lot of times with expressing that, but, um, it's, it's always there and it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty solid foundation. I, I think maybe the most solid foundation that you can build upon. Yeah. And I, um, you know, we've talked about this some too, but one of my daughters is adopted. And, uh, I remember when we were fostering her, um, there would just be times where I'd come home from like a long day of work and I get home and she was asleep and I didn't know what was going to happen with her life and what was going to be the next chapter of her life. But in that moment that I guess to use your terminology, that seemingly mundane moment of just holding my child, I remember having some of the most emotional breakdown, tearful moments holding her that I've ever felt in my life. And what I felt was just this love for this child that I never thought that I could experience. And I was an only child too, so I didn't have younger siblings and, you know, didn't grow up around a lot of kids. And um, just holding her and knowing how much I love her and then just to think that this is the love that God feels for me, you know, this this robust God who has created the ecosystem of the marsh from the yeah you know, the the bugs the little bugs on the spartina grass to the fish eating them to the the whole cycle and i think that that's to me like when i when i watched your your video that i thought the fly lords video was was really just well done and really touched on something that maybe gets overlooked a lot in the fishing industry and that's the family you know the unit behind yeah. the people who fish and I thought, man, it was just so powerful just to see the love of a father. Um, t- tell me about that day of, of filming and going out with Z <laughs> and, and t- tell us about the day, the behind the scenes of, of that. That was fun. So, you know, Jared and Max, you know, they, they come to town and, you know, they're just a hoot anyways, but we, we get out on the water, you know, we, I think we had three days and, you know, three good flood tides and, Day one, we get out and it just doesn't really happen. And then day two, we have Z out on the boat and he's he's loving it. He's a ham, you know. He's just absolutely having a ball. He's what three years old at the time or something. And uh, we had like, you know, I I never have tippet failures. Knock on wood. <laughs> we had, I think we hooked four fish that came unbuttoned and or broke had a bad tip, all these things like, you know, wanted, here we are, here I am talking about, you know, no hero shots. Well, we wanted one hero shot for the film <laughs> and it, it literally came down to like the last 15 minutes of the tide on the last day. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Z, Z still talks about, <laughs> Z still talks about Jared and Max and Max's camera <laughs> and he loves it. But you know, we had you know my buddy Luke and my buddy Mike uh, you know, out to help, help out and kind of pull us around. And I mean, we just had a good time. I mean, he, the next morning after, after the first day, you know, I kept telling him, Z, we're going to go fishing with the boys. And, you know, he'd wake up and say, Papa, we going fishing with the boys. I said, I said, yeah, we are. And he'd say, am I the boys? I'm like, you are the boys. (laughs) You are one of the boys, dude. You are an integral part of this whole thing. And, uh, yeah, we just had a blast. I mean, we, you know, we went, you know, till dark both days with Z and 
the big the big Ravenel Bridge um, that goes uh, over the harbor in, in Charleston. Uh, you know, we're riding back. It's pitch dark and you know two skiffs and my buddy Luke who's driving mine. I'm, I'm holding Z. He says, "You want to go run check out the bridge? It's lit up. It's beautiful." And I don't think I'd ever stopped underneath it at night in a, in a really calm night. And there's a serious echo under that. And so Z calls it the echo bridge now. You know, we spent 35 minutes, you know, two boats drifting underneath the bridge. You know, all of us yelling back and forth echoes to each other. And just, <laughs> I mean, he Z just, he ate it up. He ate it up. And, you know, it was, it was really great working with those guys and, um, you know, kind of seeing the end result. I've, I've got a, 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 a pretty rad like home movie, you know, to show people when I'm 80 years old or something, you know, look at, look at Z when he was little and these things he did. So it was fun. It was, you know, it, it was stressful because, you know, we talk up Charleston and here I couldn't put a fish in the boat, but it happened. We made it happen. <laughs> well, to, to you, um, I'd love to, to talk a little bit about, you know, photography and, and how that's, influenced your fishing and vice versa you know so you it seems like and correct me if i'm wrong on this that you got pretty serious about fishing and got really serious about the business of photography around the same time is, is that right uh that's yeah fishing first or fly fishing came first i think um and then i started to get relatively serious about photography um and it, it didn't really turn into any sort of a biz business venture until we really started looking at shooting weddings. Um, and I was, uh, I, I was on the, my wife and I were both part of a pretty big church here in Charleston. And, um, uh, we worked in the teen ministry and it was a huge, huge, huge group of teens we worked with. There was another couple in town that were amazing wedding photographers. And they, uh, they approached me and said, Hey, listen, we hear you're a photographer. We feel overly blessed with, uh, you know, being able to do this thing that we love for a living. And we want to see if there's anybody else that kind of wants to see what it's all about and if they could do it. And, you know, I first thought wedding photography sounds awful. You know, it sounds stressful and all these things. And, but I could probably learn a lot. And, you know, I was just, you know, he says, well, bring a portfolio and we'll have a look at your work and we'll see. And I'm like, I don't have a portfolio. I don't know what this guy's talking about. And, you know, I, I ended up going and, and, you know, good friends with those guys now. And they kind of really kicked things off for us. And the very first wedding I sort of attended with them, you know, I realized I was really ignorant in my previous assumption of that. Yes, it's a big responsibility. Yes, there's a lot of stress involved, but it's a it's a really, really cool time to be involved in somebody else's life. You know, you get kind of a, you know, behind the scenes access to, you know, the, the mood's infectious at a wedding, mm. you know, and, and so we, we love that. And that really sort of drove the business side. Um, And, and so, I mean, we do, we shoot quite a bit of weddings and, you know, of course I shoot a, a lot of other stuff too. And, and but it, it really all the business side kind of started with wedding photography. Hmm. How, how do you feel like those two things, fishing and photography have maybe in some ways, for lack of a better phrase, synergized with each other and helped one another kind of progress? That's a good question. Um, certainly 
shooting outdoors, you know, and sort of in the moment, you know, with fly fishing. So, you know, making things happen uh, or capturing things as they happen, I should say, uh, and being in the moment was really good training unintentionally, uh, but was really good training for, you know, shooting weddings. Um, Mm. There's not a lot of stage stuff that we do. Um, Most of it is just sort of being there and being aware. Um, and, and, you know, that happens a lot with the outdoor stuff that I love to shoot. You know, I, I shoot, of course, fly fishing mostly, but, you know, I do a little bit of hunting photography and some various things. And, and, and all of those sort of require you to see something and be able to manipulate the scene so that it's as authentic as possible, but also aesthetically pleasing, you know, you sort of got to be able to see the scene and, and know what you want to get out of it. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes you just kind of fall right on your face on that. And sometimes you got to work pretty hard for it. So it's, you know, just, just all depends on each individual moment. But I think certainly combining those two things and with the, um, the volatility of time, you know, so if you do get that, you know, you do get that chance with a, a with a fish to have some photos with it and all. It's it's very fleeting. You know, you do it really really quickly so that you you know get that fish back on his way and and somebody else can come catch him. And that that was really good unintentional training for being able to have you know one shot make it count at this wedding stuff that we do. Yeah, uh, that 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 makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a great explanation. If if it's good with you, I'd love to get into a section I call not so rapid fire questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never successfully accomplished rapid fire questions, although I, you know, I've always just enjoyed. You can don't feel the need to speed anything up here. Okay, okay. <laughs> but I do have a this. This is just my excuse for my laundry list of questions that don't flow. Um, this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So what advice would you give to somebody who is in the outdoors and wants to start taking photography? What is the, the essential starter kit must know first? This is what you need to do by think in the first year. Okay. First year. I think you need to start out with um, a camera that you can manipulate manually. So make sure that it has a manual control. And although you're going to mess a lot of things up in manual control right off the bat, that's going to be the crash course. You're going to learn um, 
more than you could ever imagine by doing that and keep it in your hand and shoot all the time. And I think, like I said earlier, shoot what you're passionate about and and it will resonate with the people that you're showing this to. Um, and, And that's, yeah, I mean, the first year. That's really it. I mean, you've got to you you've got to be solid in knowing what you want to capture. And as soon as you can uh you know have that camera as an ex- that, that tool that you have as a, sort of an extension of your arm and you don't have to think about that anymore, then you're going to be able to accomplish that. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good parallel to the the idea of it being an extension of your arm. It seems like the people I fish with that are the best anglers, that's kind of how the the rod is with them conventional yeah. and hand fly fishing um you know obviously shooting in the outdoors and then the in the elements and in the environment lends itself to a lot of uh gear destruction um what is the the worst story of messing up gear that you have oh gosh okay the, you know I, i've been very fortunate i haven't had a lot but i have two definitely like complete destruction that stand out and and i'm pretty hard on my gear I, it it is professional gear it is built to withstand the elements and i am a, a, a task master task master when it comes to that kind of thing um I, I will put it to the test but i have uh had my camera gear we were going down to an everglades trip and we had ordered a new lens that i wanted to use on that trip um through amazon prime well they had an unexpected delay and I didn't get it in time, but a coworker had just bought the exact same lens brand new. And I said, look, man, you know, I take care of my gear. Let me borrow it. And, and he was hesitant, but he did. I said, I'm going to take care of it. So I, we go down to the Everglades. We're in the back country. We're off the West, the, 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 the West Cape there or off of East Cape on the West coast. And it's early morning. And, uh, there's, tarpon rolling all around us and we're staked out and I was taking a couple of pictures and my buddy hooked up on the bow and I set the camera down and I, when I had my Ginu, I, you know, I had C deck on the platform and it was kind of a, it was a safe place to set a camera. It's not going to slide. Luke's boat was brand new. He, he was fishing a new Kaya and he did not have C deck on the platform yet. So it's just a little thin piece of fiberglass with gel coat up there. So I set it down. Um, we maneuver over to the side of the boat. The boat tips. I hear it slide. I swipe for it and miss it. And it goes about 12 feet deep. We're in about 12 feet of water in you know murky water off the glades right at dawn. And I couldn't bring myself to go into water after it. You know, we had been seeing, a, you know, over the course of days, you know, a bunch of sharks and just all kinds of things. And I'm like, I can't, I can't do that. I can't swim down in the dark and fumble around. There's no way. And oh. I had caught, so the day prior I had caught my biggest snook I will ever catch and my biggest tarpon I will ever catch. And it was all on that camera. And, you know, and Luke tells me that he's like, dude, you, you got to go get it. I'm like, I don't, I don't think I can. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I took, I took a rod out of the holder and took the, the, the hook and reeled it all the way up to the tip. You know, so it was just a tiny little, like a, a, a little tarpon hook right in the, in the, the, the tip guide on the rod. And I, and we were staked out and I could see, so the camera started bubbling. So there was little fizzy bubbles coming up where 
it was flooding with water. And I stick the rod down to touch the bottom, <laughs> thinking I can maybe grapple it, you know, as a last ditch effort to trying to feel around the dark in the bottom of that, that water. And, and I couldn't even touch bottom. I thought, Oh no. So I, I, I readjust and I lean down and I've got like my head in the water and leaning as far as I can. And the rod tip hits the bottom and I go to like swirl it around and I can't. Well, I pick it up. I had hooked the strap. So I got it up. I took, I got it up. I separated everything. I laid it on a towel, waited, hopefully it would dry. I take the camp, take the cards out. The battery took it out. It was swelling up. It was going to bust. We put that away and one of the two cards survived and I, and I got the pictures off of it, but I had to buy a brand new lens. I had to buy another lens for my buddy who I just dropped his brand new lens in the water and ruined it. And that's, uh, are those photos, are those photos special <laughs> or yeah. are they a reminder of, uh, are, are they a, a reminder of, uh, a not so good time? No, no, they're, no, they're special. We, we, and we've got a joke on that, that same boat. So that same trip, I lost an iPhone and then other people have donated quite a few electronics and oh. off of that specific boat. And, and we've got the joke running that, you know, it, it demands a penance that boat does in an electronic <laughs> penance. And so, so there's that. And then, you know, in a subsequent trip, uh, we were in the, we were in the keys and a buddy of mine had just rebuilt a 91, 1991, I think, Hughes Bonefisher, 16 foot. And it was beautiful boat. He did a great job for it. And we shoot up to Robbie's right before dark to go up there and just go grab a drink. And I'm like, hey, man, I'll run the drone. We'll get some shots of your new, of this boat, this new to you boat. You got all, you just finished before this trip. And he's like, great. So we start, we, we go up and we're, we're running and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm filming while it's, while it's running. And we clear the ch- the cut we were going through, and I made sure it was clear, and I and I slide down to come in right behind the boat and get a cool video because I was like straight up overhead, and I think I caught the last mangrove branch that was sticking <laughs> out, and I'm literally looking at the screen and, and it's almost dark, and I just see you know leaves leaves and branches and then you know the the spiral and then nothing. And we went back and tried to find that thing, and we could not find that thing to save our lives. <laughs> so I don't have any of that. But those are probably my two biggest gear mishaps. Oh, and, and when I was in Antarctica one time, I set down a 70 to 200 um, Canon L lens, which is white. I set it down amongst all these pressure ridges where the Ross Sea kind of butts up against Ross Island, and the tide makes these giant kind of wave, crashing wave formations out of the ice. And there were some seals around and things, and... So we were kind of wandering around that, and I, I set I set it down to change lenses, which I never do, and I wandered off, and like two hours later, I realized I'm li- I'm missing my white lens down here in the middle of of the Sestrugi and the uh, the pressure ridges in in the ice in Antarctica, and I found it. I, I retraced my steps and got it. Wow. But yeah, I thought that one was gone. I'm never going to see that one again. Yeah, you're gonna have to put some uh, neon tape on that next time, <laughs> right? Right. Well, that that kind of leads me to a question I had jotted down, which is I know that you're you love being a part of the Charleston community, and I've interviewed a few Charleston guides by this point, and uh, talked a decent bit with Paul Puckett, who speaks really high of you, 
And um, I know that you love being a part of that local community, but I also know that you have to travel a lot just between photography and then that you enjoy traveling with fishing. Talk to me about managing the tension between traveling and trying to keep local community. Yeah, I'm not even sure I do that very well, <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm typically out of the country for a few months a year. And so, you know, I, I get essentially nine months at home. And so trying to fit everything into that time when I, when I'm home every year is, uh, it's definitely challenging, you know, and, you know, working essentially two full-time jobs and still being able to recreate and then see all the people that you want to see and, and everything. It's, it's a balancing act. Um, I, I'm not sure I pull it off so well. Uh, there's certainly a lot of people that I, I, I want to see more often and there's just not time, you know? Um, so I'm not sure if that really even answers your question, but that's, yeah. that's what it is. It's a good, it's a good, honest answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm going to, as uh, you know, we're kind of slowly running out of time here. I'm going to, I, I want to hear a story about what makes one of these two places so great. And I want you to pick okay. one and then the next time that we do an interview we'll circle back and and talk about the other one okay great so tell me about either traveling to antarctica or fishing new zealand your choice let's talk about new zealand this time how about that that sounds great that's what i was hoping oh good okay all right um yeah i've been i've been going down there for for many years and uh just you know, for work. So essentially, it's passing through. But I, I take some time uh, to get out and and enjoy it. And it's you know, it's one of those places where if you if you've ever considered considered going or thought it's a place you you would like to go visit, uh, I would suggest to to bump it up a few levels and put it, if not at, then right near the top of your list. Um, it's a phenomenal place. Most of my time I've had I've spent on the South Island. Um, the people are fantastic. the The weather is great. Uh, you know, the weather can be pretty um, severe one end or the other, um, just because of where it's located. But uh, and and of course, you know, if you're a fly fisherman, it is a world class trout destination. Um, it's been quite um, there. There's a lot of water there, but it's been I don't want to say it's overfished, but there's there's a lot of attention on it you know, in recent years. And so you do have some, some company on the water sometimes, and, um, at least compared to New Zealand standards, but, um, it's a really technical fishery. I'm not a trout guy. And so it was incredibly challenging for me to sort of figure that out and, and go with it. You're, you're, you're not fishing water so much, as you're fishing to specific individual fish, um, there are places where you can, you know, you fish seams and you fish, you do that and you can be productive. But for the most part, you're doing a lot of walking and not very much swinging a fly rod, um, which is really kind of enjoyable. And, you know, something that I really love about how we fish saltwater with skiffs and, you know, kind of in a team um, I, I enjoy team sports like that. I, I like being part of something where someone else is also a part of it. And, and New Zealand is, uh, 
is, is very much the same. You know, mm. when when you're on a skiff with somebody, you you're whether you're up front or you know you're pulling, you know you're you're part of a team and you're you're both sort of responsible for the success or that abject failure. You know that I was talking about earlier, and it it's very similar in New Zealand. You know, most of you're going to be most effective. Um, you know, as part of a group or a part of a, a pair. And so you've got a lot of help. You know, you don't always get to fish in the, the greatest spotting conditions, but that's what you try to maximize. And so um, you try to use elevation and sun angles to your advantage based on what side of the river you're going to be walking, you know, and you're really just inspecting water really heavily. And having someone there to, you know, once you spot a fish, you know, if you're, let's say you're up on a high bank on one side and you can see them, when you get down behind that fish and get lined up with them, you might not be able to see them at all. And so having somebody as like, you know, an integral part of the team there that's guiding you into that and, and calling shots and helping you out, it, it, it's just a lot of fun, you know, and then at the end of the day, you get to spend, you know, you, you spend a meal together and, you know, make backcountry espresso and, uh, you know, just whatever it is that you that that you do, and so it's it's a really great place to be. Um, yeah, I, I've really enjoyed the time I've been able to spend there in the last number of years. Uh, um, I haven't done a proper proper trip in, in, as far as like taking a chunk of time off in in a little while. So it's sort of fishing around the workday, which is uh, still pretty hard to complain about. <laughs> uh, absolutely, absolutely, you got me sold. Yeah. Right, oh, so. yeah. It's yeah. It, <laughs> if if you're if you're hearing this, then you should put it on your list of someplace to go. It's it's phenomenal. Another question. You know, you've had the chance to to fish with a lot of different anglers. By your assessment, what makes a, a great angler? Someone that's um, uh, that that's okay with not being his best. Hmm. You know, if you can. It, it to, well to be the, the I think the most successful angler, uh, as far as well I guess success can be measured in you know against many different uh, uh, rulers. But um, if, if you're talking about success as far as accomplishing your goal of catching fish, then uh, I think people are most successful when they're not so hard on themselves. Mm. You know, and anybody can. You know, have a, a couple of bad experiences, whether they were um, under their control or not, you know, the fish didn't act the way it needed to, or the wind is just awful that day or something. And it gets in your head and you get behind the account and you know, you're done and you just need a break. And I think that uh, the people that are lighthearted about the entire de- ordeal, a, they enjoy it more than, than others and uh and be there they're also more successful with it so same same question but what makes great photographers oh um i think someone that's not afraid to how to say risk it all you're not really risking it all and you know in photography you don't get a one image it's not the end of the world i guess just depending on what capacity you're shooting but you know um, it's hard to, it's hard to describe. I, I think someone that you can tell that they, 
were not manipulative of a situation, that they were just present and sort of um, bided their time, you know, for knowing that something was going to happen, sort of being able to read a situation and and go for that. Or if it's something that they sort of designed in their head and, and set up beforehand, um, if it was a really high risk shot, like, um, you know, and I, I say quite a bit, even when we do like weddings and all, I'm like, hey, I've got an idea. I don't even know if this is going to work. This may be a horrible idea, but if you're game, let's try this and try it. And, you know, nine times out of 10, it, it comes out, you know, amazingly. Um, but it's sort of really treading that edge of, you know, this is just absolutely not going to work and be a, maybe a small waste of time. But um, you don't, you don't ever want to put something in somebody's memory. Like I remember when he said specifically, let's try this. And then like, where is that? Where, what happened to that image? And like, yeah, it was just, it wasn't good. <laughs> So, sorry about your your special day. <laughs> sorry about just sorry about yeah putting that expectation on you. But yeah, I think it's someone that's um, that's able to um, to to be as authentic as they possibly can, and someone that's not afraid to take risks um, as far as you know breaking the rules of photography. Hmm. So you do a lot of small skiff fishing, and uh, I've just noticed that you've always had the most interesting things on your skiff from what I found <laughs> most interesting was a pizza oven <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to, uh, to turtle box speakers. Give me the, uh, you know, the Jeremy Clark skiff essentials. Oh, okay. Essentials. Um, well, I've got to have a camera on board or I feel naked. You know, I've got to add a, got to have a camera on board. Um, the turtle box is been a staple of every outing since I've come across those guys. You know, that we listen to a lot of music on the skiff. That's a huge, just part of what we do and what we enjoy. And we've proven, you know, we, we've been on the fence for a while about, can you pull a flat, you know, with music blaring and still see redfish? And the answer is yes. You can now. Maybe you don't see as many. I, I don't know. I don't have really a real control group to to base that off of. But uh, but yeah, definitely good music. Um, we uh, we like to eat well, whether that be something really simple or kind of going all out, and and we, and we do that. And I'm not scared to throw some extra things and take some extra time on the skiff. So whether that be I had a rule last year and then this year that I don't do a flood tide without a watermelon. It's just <laughs> something I just did. And, but it like in, in my particular skiff, you know, I have one sort of dry storage area. It's in the coffin box in the middle. There's no hatches or anything in the boat. Really simple. I love how Harry builds his skiffs, but, um, that's got camera equipment and all that. I'm not putting, I don't want to put a watermelon in there. So, so if you put it on the deck, it just rolls around. So I I got these like little cylinder sandbags that are meant for like laying at the foot of your garage door to keep water out if it floods or something. And I sewed them in a circle. And so it's like a donut, like a GPS donut like they used to have on your dash. <laughs> and and I just throw it in the boat and you put a watermelon in it and it stays exactly where you put it. So so I think 
I think that's an essential. And I've I've got a, a relatively new one that I've just fallen in love with. And um, I'd bought a piece of fake grass, like AstroTurf. Yeah. And I, I cut it to fit and I just laid it in the boat and we've had it in the last couple of trips. And it is phenomenally good. Yeah, I saw that. I, I need a. <laughs> I, I I didn't know if that was like for fun or if there was if there was a, a real deep functional purpose there. Sell us on the uh, Jeremy Clark AstroTurf floor deck. Man, do you you walk across it in your bare feet and it'll sell itself. It just feels good, you know. I mean, there's nothing wrong with without it, but things don't roll around. Um, I had been toying with, you know, putting C-Deck down and that's a great option, but, you know, things are quiet. You know, if you set a reel down to, to, to re-rig something, you know, I've, I'm pretty, like I said, I'm pretty hard on my gear, but there's a couple reels I take pretty good care of and don't want to, you know, get them all marred up and I didn't have anything in the bottom now. Now you can just lay it down there at, but it really, it just feels phenomenal on your feet. Yeah, it's it. We'll call it redneck sea deck. Oh yeah, it absolutely is. <laughs> you know, Tyler at Castaway, he uh, he he might he might want to get in his own line of. <laughs> there you custom, go. Custom, you know, get your logo in there and, and That's everything. A, so my my wife made the you know she said, "Well, you put a Zealand logo on everything else. How are you going to do it here? You know, messing with me?" And I said, "I'll take a pair of hair clippers and." and and just trim out like a, a zealand logo in the front of this right in front of the spray deck. paint thing it'll look like a football field. oh do that yeah somebody told me i need to put hashtags on it or ha- wait not hashtags hash marks Hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you could do it you could find a way man there's always a way well um, so when i was in the marine corps we had a um four of us went in and and bought a short school bus and it was my daily driver for two years, and we covered the outside of it in green Asher turf. And so that's been many years ago, and and yeah, we we sported that thing around for a while, and it was really obnoxious. But was uh, there was there a reason for the AstroTurf on the outside? Yeah, it was it was primer gray from the guy we bought it from, um, and we were thinking about painting it, but we didn't have like. You know, we were going to paint it outside by our apartment. We're like, that's just going to look horrible. So we were like, let's cover it in shag carpet or something. Somebody said that. So we went and looked and shag carpet was like really expensive. But while we looked at that, there was a remnant roll of that really short green AstroTurf stuff. And so we bought that and like a five gallon bucket of liquid nails and putty knives. And we went to town and the whole thing was covered in green AstroTurf. You might be the first person to ever go, I think I'm going to paint this. You know what? I don't want it to look bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's put green AstroTurf on it. Yeah. The progression the progression of that decision-making <laughs> did not make any sense at all. But yeah, no, I, I saw this idea for the stuff in the bottom of the boat from a, uh, a friend of a friend, actually. And when I saw that, I thought, why in the world didn't I think about that? I covered an entire bus in that stuff why well, have I not thought of using that here in the skiff but yeah it's been yeah. fun it's been in there for uh, like a week so the jury's still out but it, it's fun as your friend I'll make sure Harry doesn't see that oh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> we yeah, all he's, know how Harry would feel he's, oh he's not gonna not like that. Be a fan of that yeah so I had a, he would you never know I had a conversation with him about cup holders one time and yeah he was not a fan yeah 
yeah i i i deal with that regularly <laughs> he's uh he's very focused on it being a tool um and uh here, here's my last question so okay. I, I like to ask my ask my guest this so with everything that you've gone through in life right now the incredible people that you've got to meet and fish with the incredible places you've got to go the the business you've built all of that if you could go back to that kid running around virginia and give him one little piece of advice to help him along the way, what would it be? Hmm. This might be where you have to edit out a pause because I'm going to think for just two seconds. <laughs> um, one piece of advice to younger me. You know, I think I might say, you know, don't don't wait as long on things to happen and be a little more aggressive uh, you know, for the the things that you want. Hmm. You know, if you if you're a little more aggressive to those things and you don't wait so much for them to come to you, uh you can positively affect those and you know, some of the things that I have I have in mind just myself or um, or within relation to myself for things that have brought me great, great, great joy in my life. And there's, there's no reason to put that off. Mm. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for hanging out with us today. I, I really, I hope that we can do a part two. I think most people are going to, are going to want to hear the other side of the Antarctica story, <laughs> uh, right. am, amongst other things, you know, there's a lot of things that, that we could have got into that we left on the table. Um, but Thanks so much just for sharing all these great insights and your story. And I really appreciate it and I enjoyed it. And thanks for, for being a part. Yeah. Hunter, thanks for having me, man. It's uh it's fun. The time has flown by. I'm looking at the, the timer now and it doesn't feel like we've been on here very long at all, but yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure being a part of it. And uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy This is The Captain's Collective.